Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing along in this study which we have entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we have come to part four. And if you're following along in the notes, and by the way, all of these outlines and previous recordings should be available at our website, new-life-ministries.org. Um, you'll notice we've been spending a long time in this part four at Mount Sinai. And it's interesting because Israel spent a long time at Mount Sinai too. They were there almost a year after coming out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, that took a relatively short amount of time. They spent a long time here at Mount Sinai because there were a number of important things that God wanted to accomplish while they were there. And I want to go through this list again. We're nearing the end of it, but seven important things that we're looking at one by one that God waited for them to come to Mount Sinai before he accomplished. Uh, he could have done this earlier in their journey, but uh, for his own reasons, he chose to do these seven important things at Mount Sinai which we have been studying is a beautiful picture for us in the New Testament of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And let me just recap this very quickly because I want to get right into this tonight. At Mount Sinai, God gave his law through Moses to the people. He revealed his law, and through that law, he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And more importantly, through that covenant, he brought them into a very special, intimate kind of a relationship, which is compared to marriage. We saw in the book of Jeremiah that God said at Mount Sinai, he became a husband to them. So a very close, intimate kind of a covenant relationship between God and and his people. Thirdly, it was at Mount Sinai that God said, make me a temple. He sought for a sanctuary, a dwelling place, where he might dwell in their midst. It's called the tabernacle of Moses, or the tabernacle of testimony. And it took them the better part of a year to construct that tabernacle, which when finally completed, we saw God filled it with his glory. And that's the fourth thing that God did at Mount Sinai. He revealed his glory to the people, both on the mountain as well as in the tabernacle and even upon the tabernacle. There was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night resting upon that tabernacle, which all could see. It was a visible testimony, that's why it's called the tabernacle of testimony, a visible testimony to everyone that God was there and that his glory was with his people. Fifthly, and this is where we ended last time, very important, at Mount Sinai, God numbered the people, he organized them, 
and place them into a distinct marching order so that as they leave Mount Sinai, they are leaving not as two and a half million disorganized slaves, but as an army ordered and organized by tribe and by family, and each tribe in a specific place and in a specific marching order. It's a beautiful picture of what God does through the baptism in the Holy Spirit of baptizing each and every one of us into the body of Christ. Each one of us is a member of that body, but we don't pick and choose what member we will be. We don't even pick and choose where we will be in that body. We saw last time, He places us as it pleases Him into that body. Now, tonight we want to continue on with a sixth very important thing that God accomplishes at Mount Sinai. It's here that God establishes a kingdom of priests. Two key words, kingdom and priest. And we'll first read a few scriptures, and then we'll give a little bit more of a definition of those two terms, because those are the two key terms we're going to be looking at tonight. At Mount Sinai, God revealed to the entire nation of Israel that his purpose was for them to serve him as a kingdom of priests. You'll remember repeatedly, while they were still in Egypt, Moses went before Pharaoh saying, let my people go so that they may serve me. Very important words, so that they may serve me. Now we're going to learn the specifics about how God intended for them to serve him. And part of being a priest is being a servant of God serving God, worshiping God, ministering unto God, and ministering for God. God's original purpose, we have to be very clear about this, was for the entire nation to serve him. However, we will learn that at Mount Sinai, something beyond that also takes place. God separates one tribe the tribe of Levi, out from amongst the other tribes of Israel to be his full-time consecrated priests and ministers. And these words, kingdom of priests, is a very interesting phrase. What God was actually doing was establishing a theocracy. This was not a democracy where everybody voted and the majority ruled. This was a theocracy, ruled by God. But God was going to rule the nation through his appointed priests that made up the governing body of his kingdom. At this point in time, and this is another interesting study which we won't be getting into uh, at this time. But at this time, there were no kings in Israel. That comes later on when the people kept 
bothering Samuel, saying, we want to have a king like all the other nations, and finally, God gave them King Saul. Um, he was very unhappy about that, because he revealed through Samuel, I was their king. God was king over Israel, and he was establishing his rule through a priesthood. That's where we get this term, kingdom of priests. Now, let's look at Exodus 19 again. This is as they are coming to Mount Sinai. Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So, very clearly, God tells the entire nation, not only will you be my people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We'll come back to this, but it's important to note this is a conditional statement. Verse 5, you'll find the word if. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, let's talk about the function of a priest. You actually find priest mentioned in the Bible prior to this. What does a priest do? Well, it's generally agreed upon that a priest has a twofold function. He ministers unto God, if you like, some people refer to that as the vertical part of the priest priestly office or priestly ministry. It's upward between me and God. And then there's the horizontal or ministering to people on behalf of God. So, the priest ministers unto God on behalf of the people. Uh, that would include offering gifts, sacrifices, prayers, worship unto God, and then he ministers to the people on behalf of God. He gives God's word, God's counsel, and God's instruction. So there are many, many aspects to this office or ministry of being a priest. Now, God told Israel, I want all of you to form a kingdom of priests. However, 
while they were still at Mount Sinai, you'll remember the covenant was broken, signified by Moses coming back down from the mountain with the two tablets of stone still fresh in his hands, he sees that the people have already prostituted themselves, they're dancing around a golden calf, they're worshiping an idol, they've already, in, a, in essence, broken the covenant that God wanted with them, and thus Moses breaks those two tablets of stone, signifying the breaking of the covenant. Something even more important takes place as a result of that. And we pick this up in the story in Exodus 32. Exodus 32, beginning at verse 25, this is as Moses is descending back down from Mount Sinai, and he sees what the people are doing. Just in that brief period of time that he's been up in the mountain with God, it says, starting in verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. Not a pretty picture. Verse 26. So he, Moses, stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, King James says, Who's on the Lord's side? Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all of the Levites rallied to him. That's interesting. Just one tribe, the tribe of Levi. They all should have come running across to Moses, but only one tribe is now willing to commit themselves and say, we're on the Lord's side. The Levites rallied to him. Then Moses said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Yes, I read that correctly. Killing his brother and friend and neighbor. This is a serious event here. Very serious. Verse 28. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. You know, I'm, I'm not laughing at the people dying, but I'm just, I'm laughing at the Word of God, the things we read in the Bible. And I'm what I guess theologians would refer to as a fundamentalist or a literalist. I believe this really happened. I don't believe this is an allegory or some kind of a symbolic story. I believe 3,000 Israelites died that day at Mount Sinai. And, you know, when we get close to God, and we're talking about 
serving God and ministering unto God, it's serious business. And as you keep reading through uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there will be many others who die. And I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, but even priests died inside the tabernacle because they didn't reverence and respect God and his order. So like it says in the book of Hebrews, it's a serious thing to fall in the hands of a living God. This is not a dead God. This is not an idol. This is a living God. And God is very serious about his covenant. He's very serious about those who will enter into his presence and minister unto him. So reading verse 28 again, the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. And I'm adding this, but it's clearly in the context. Died at Mount Sinai. Then Moses said, You, addressing the Levites, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. Now let's try to understand what happened here. While Moses is in the mountain receiving the very words of the covenant law, most of the Israelites have already prostituted themselves. They're running wild, worshiping a golden calf, dancing around this calf, saying, these are the gods that delivered us out of Egypt. What a grievous thing this was, both for Moses and especially for God to hear. Moses says, who is on God's side? Eleven tribes did not come over. It's important to remember that. Eleven tribes did not cross over the line and say, We're for the Lord. Only one tribe, the tribe of Levi, rallied to him. Then God gives them this strange command, and we'll see in a minute, that it was actually a test. God was testing them to see if they were going to be faithful to him, because you have to be faithful to God if you're going to be his priest and his minister. The Levites demonstrated something at Mount Sinai. They were so zealous for God, they were even willing to put their sons, their daughters, their brothers, and their friends to the sword. This wasn't their idea. This was God's decree. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Now, this sounds very extreme to us. And it was. It was extremely um, unpleasant to even witness such a thing. It says, killing his brother? 
his friend and his neighbor. And then verse 29 adds, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers. And he has blessed you this day. Key expression we'll find here and in the next passage we want to look at, you have been set apart to the Lord today. Something very significant that would affect the whole history of Israel from this point forward for many, many years to come. The Levites were set apart from the rest of the tribes because of what happened here at Mount Sinai. To get some more clarity on this, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And I failed to mention, if you are following in the notes, we're on page 53 of the outline. Deuteronomy 10, verses 8 to 10. In the context, Moses is reminding the people of this event, of what happened at Mount Sinai. And he says, at that time, he's specifically referring to Mount Sinai, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, that was the principal centerpiece of furniture in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. That's where the two tablets of the law were kept. And that's where the glory of God literally dwelt, above the Ark of the Covenant. God set apart the tribe of Levi to carry that Ark, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessings in His name as they still do today. Now you'll notice two aspects are mentioned there of what we mentioned earlier as far as the job or the function of a priest. One is to stand before the Lord and to minister to the Lord on behalf of the people and then minister to the people on behalf of God. Both are mentioned here. To stand before the Lord to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name. Verse 9, that is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. Now, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Let's look at two more key passages from the Old Testament, and then we'll try to draw this over into our New Testament experience. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Here you find the different tribal blessings, blessings uh, spoken prophetically to each one of the tribes of Israel. And this is the one for Levi, the tribe of Levi. Deuteronomy 33, 
verses 8 to 10. About Levi, he said, Your Thummim and Urim belong to your faithful servant. You tested him at Massah. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did that he did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. Verse ten He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. This is a bit hard for us to understand, but God tested the Israelites at Mount Sinai, and it's obvious that only one tribe passed the test. The test was, who's on my side? Who's on the Lord's side? Well, it was only the Levites that came over and stood with Moses, representing their commitment, their faithfulness to God, to his word, and to the covenant that had already been broken. And that's why, specifically to Levi, God says, you're my faithful servant. It says that God tested him, and what was the test? He said of his father and his mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. Now, some people stumble over this. Let me try to help you a little bit. Obviously, God was not telling them to violate one of the very Ten Commandments that were written on those two tablets of stone. Honor your father and your mother. Well, why does it then say, you tested him, and he said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. That would seem to indicate he's breaking the fifth commandment honor your father and mother. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children. That sounds kind of weird, too. Well, here's what I believe, if you study the entire Bible, here's what you will begin to put together, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. God was looking for a group of people that loved God more than anybody. Their love for the Word of God, their faithfulness to the covenant of God, was even above and beyond their love for father, mother, children, brothers, sisters, or friends. In other words, they literally had to take a sword to the flesh, the flesh of son, daughter, brother, 
And it would seem from these verses in Deuteronomy 33, I don't know, maybe even father and mother. But it came down to my allegiance to God supersedes any other carnal relationship. God is supreme in my life. His covenant is more important to me than anything else. And because of this extreme stand that only the Levites took, God says, I've set them apart to be my ministers, to be my servants. And reading verse 10 again here in Deuteronomy 33, He will teach my precepts and my law to Israel. He will offer incense and whole burnt offerings. In other words, they have now been qualified as ministers of God because of the stand they took at Mount Sinai. Let me read one more rather long passage from the Old Testament and then we're going to look at some things in the New Testament. And trust me, we're just glossing the surface here. This is a very in-depth study, and there's much, much more to it. And I know when I give these teachings to pastors, ministers, or future ministers, we go into a great deal of depth about this, because it's a very important part of the Bible. Numbers chapter 3, starting with verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi. Here we are again. And just a side note, Moses was a Levite. So was Aaron, the first high priest. So, the tribe of Levi is singled out again here. The Lord said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. Now, we've not looked at all the scriptures about how Aaron became priest, but you can read all that. Aaron has already been made priest, and God has made it very clear that Aaron and his sons will serve as priests. Now the whole tribe of Levi is being separated and told to be presented to Aaron, the high priest, to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. That's very important. Notice, this one tribe has now been separated specifically to fulfill these priestly 
and ministerial functions or obligations. Let me read verse 8 again. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. This is very serious. God is very serious about who's going to serve him and who can't. He has now drawn a line. The tribe of Levi will be consecrated and dedicated to this work. No one else is to come near. And even within the tribe of Levi, God makes a further distinction. Only Aaron and his sons are to serve me as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. And there are examples later on in the Old Testament of people who tried to do that, and it didn't go well for them. Verse 11. The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine. For all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel whether human or animal, they are to be mine. I am the Lord. So, let's recap what we're seeing here in the Old Testament. At Mount Sinai, God revealed to the entire nation, all twelve tribes, if you will obey me, that's a conditional statement, And if you will keep my covenant, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I would maintain that they failed. While still there at Mount Sinai, they failed to keep their end of the bargain. They did not obey God. They did not keep his covenant. And so God issues this command, those who are on the Lord's side come across and stand with Moses, take out his sword, and go back and forth through the camp, killing brother, friend, neighbor. The Lord tested them at Mount Sinai, and he found the tribe of Levi was zealous for his covenant, faithful to him. God separates at that point one tribe, the tribe of Levi now, to perform the priestly duties of assisting Aaron and taking care of all of the holy things that made up the tabernacle. They were now dedicated to do the work of the tabernacle 
and to assist Aaron with sacrifices, with offerings, and remember this tabernacle had to be set up, taken down, and carried from point to point as they traveled through the wilderness. Only the Levites and Aaron and his sons were allowed to touch any of those items. Anyone else that even so much as touched a curtain or one of those pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, they would be put to death. So this was a very serious thing that took place at Mount Sinai. And obviously, this early on in the story, God is demonstrating that he's very serious about those who will serve him and who will represent him. Now, what in the world does this mean to us as believers in Christ? Well, it's a bit complicated, but I'll try to simplify it a bit. Once again, coming to Mount Sinai corresponds to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We've looked at a number of important things that happen when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We individually become a temple. Corporately, we are all united together in one body. We become the temple, the holy habitation of God. God organizes us together as an army with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, every member in his or her place, with specific gifts and calling from God, and moving as one unit, as one body for God. We also find that through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, all of us are brought into a kingdom of priests. Two key words, kingdom and priesthood. We become priests of the Lord, and we become a part of God's kingdom. A passage we've mentioned numerous times, and I want to read it again because I feel that it is so very important, and there's a lot of confusion amongst Christians about this one. John chapter 3 from verse 3 to 8, the story of Jesus with Nicodemus. It's only found in the Gospel of John, a, a profound dialogue that takes place between Jesus and Nicodemus here. Let's go through it carefully again. John 3, starting at verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Key word, see the kingdom. Can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter, different word, no one can enter 
the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, if you've been with us for all of these studies, you've heard me teach on this already, but let me go through it one more time. Seeing is not the same thing as entering. I'm sorry, they don't mean the same thing. I can see my neighbor's house across the street. That doesn't mean I'm in their living room. I need to go through the door and I need to enter their house to be inside their house. Jesus chose his words very carefully and I believe very deliberately here. He's talking about three separate and distinct experiences which we have been looking at week after week in this Bible study. To see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. To enter the kingdom of God, two other things are required. Born of water. It's not the same as born again. And born of the Spirit. It's not the same as born of water, nor is it the same thing as born again. Why did Jesus use this word born three times? Born again, born of water, born of spirit. Well, a birth implies the beginning or the origin of a new life. Something new is coming into existence, and it's something living. We don't say that a rock was born, a cloud was born, a baby is born. So... It's a new life. There's a new life that wasn't previously there that takes place when a sinner repents and receives Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. They're born again. Born again. It's a supernatural experience. Born of water, likewise, is the beginning of a new life. We studied this in the context of the Red Sea, representing water baptism. Paul teaches very clearly in Romans 6, something happens in water baptism. It's not just a ceremony. It's not just something we do in front of the church so everybody knows that we're a believer. No, there's a spiritual operation of God that takes place in water baptism, where the old man of sin is buried, and we are raised to, and listen to these words carefully, walk in newness of life. Remember, birth represents a new life. Newness of life that results from water baptism. And then thirdly, born of the Spirit. Jesus uses this term twice here, 
he ends in verse 8 again, saying, You hear the sound of the wind, cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Not everyone will agree with me on this, but I'm convinced born of the Spirit refers to baptized in the Holy Spirit. Born of water is baptized in water. Born of the Spirit, baptized in Spirit. These are two foundational doctrines of the church that are listed for us in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. Without those foundations, we can never go on to maturity. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, and baptisms. It's plural. Baptisms. Baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit. Two different baptisms that are mentioned in the New Testament. We need both baptisms. Baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's interesting how Jesus explains this to Nicodemus. Flesh can only give rise to flesh. Or, more specifically, flesh can only give birth to flesh. (laughs) Fleshly things only produce more fleshly things. That's why we must be born of the Spirit. When you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's the beginning of a new life. It's called a spiritual life. And that's why he goes on to say, Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we are now walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, living in the Spirit, born of the Spirit. And he uses this metaphor that's found throughout the Bible of the wind. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. A couple of things about wind. Number one, wind came on the day of Pentecost when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind. Secondly, in Hebrew, there's only one word for he for spirit, for wind, and for breath. It's all one Hebrew word, ruach. That's what it means, wind, breath, or spirit. So to a Jewish person with a Hebrew mind, this made perfect sense because wind is spirit and spirit is wind. If you're born of the wind, you're born of the spirit, and if you're born of the spirit, you're born of the wind. So the wind blows wherever it pleases. The spirit blows or moves wherever it wants to. It's invisible. Wind is invisible, and the spirit of God is invisible. Doesn't mean you can't hear it, or see its effects, or feel it blowing across your face. We can feel the moving of the Holy Spirit. We can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, just as we can see the evidence of the wind blowing through a tree, the, the, we, the leaves waving around, and even maybe some of the, 
leaves being pulled off and blown, carried in that wind. The key here is how Jesus connects the kingdom with the Holy Spirit. To enter the kingdom of God, we must be born of water and born of the Spirit. It's only through the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we are truly baptized into the kingdom of God. I think a few other verses will help us here. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Remember, flesh can only give birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. This kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. has nothing to do with this worldly system. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. In other words, it's not carnal. Kingdom of God has nothing to do with fleshly or carnal things. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Well, what is it a matter of? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Key words. Kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, not in the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 2. These words are going to sound almost identical to what we read at the beginning tonight from Exodus chapter 19, where God told the Israelites, If you will obey me and keep my commandment, then you'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is now in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. Peter, writing to Christians, he says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Ah, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is not writing just to full-time pastors or priests. He's writing to all Christians. He's telling all Christians, you are like living stones, you're being built into a spiritual house called the temple of God, the house of God, the body of Christ, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice two times he uses the word spiritual. You can't be spiritual if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't be holy if you don't have the Holy Spirit. So, obviously, Peter 
who knew these things very well, and we can see that on the uh, day of Pentecost itself, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they asked him, what are we supposed to do now? He said, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what you must do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just as God's original intention was for the whole nation of Israel to be a holy nation for him, to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, now, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through water baptism, and through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, Peter says we are all being united together as one spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Every believer in Christ is called and anointed, equipped to be a royal priest. What do priests do? They minister unto God, and they minister to people. All of us are called into this priesthood. Look also at a very similar passage in Revelation chapter 1, and then we'll find it in Revelation chapter 5 again. Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and here it comes, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ, who loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, but he goes on, to make us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father. We don't have the time in this study to go into the depth of this. There's much, much more. But let me just say a few words here in closing. Jesus was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. Technically, Jesus was not qualified to be a priest according to the Old Covenant law. You had to be a Levite. Had to be a descendant of Aaron. He was neither. He was from the tribe of Judah. But the book of Hebrews spends several chapters explaining something significant happened through Jesus Christ he began a whole new order of priesthood. The priesthood after the order of Aaron and Levi was done away with. Starting with Jesus, 
a whole new order of priesthood or ministry was begun. It's called priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Now you're going to have to trust me here because I don't have the time to go into all of this. If you want to study Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, you can on your own, and I think you'll be able to see this there. Melchizedek is a representative in the Old Testament. You meet Melchizedek, Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Kind of a mysterious figure. But then the writer of Hebrews tells us some more details about Melchizedek. He had no father. He had no mother. Huh. That's interesting. He has no genealogy. But if you go on and read the description, this is not an angel. This is not some earthly king. This is God himself. Has no beginning, no end of days. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And long story short, Jesus became a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry was not derived from his carnal lineage. He had a carnal lineage. He was from the tribe of Judah. But his qualification for ministry came when he was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. When Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, that qualified him for ministry. And for 30 years, he didn't heal any sick, he didn't cast out any devils, he didn't preach any sermons. He waited until he was filled with the Holy Spirit, Melchizedek. And after his 40 days in the wilderness, he returns in the power of the Spirit, we are told in Luke chapter 4. He goes into the synagogue, opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. And you know the rest of the scriptures. He's anointed me to minister. Jesus' ministry was by virtue of the fact that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. It begins a whole new order of ministry and priesthood. It's called priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. What is it? It's priesthood by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You and I have no other qualification to minister. Let me be very clear about this. has nothing to do with anything carnal. has nothing to do with our nationality, our skin color, what college we went to, how many books we've read, how much we know. Our only qualification to minister as new covenant priests is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's why we must be born of the Spirit. It's the baptism in the Holy Spirit that brings us into the kingdom of God, into this royal priesthood. And every Spirit-baptized believer, I don't care whether you're a pastor or not, a full-time apostle or not, 
every spirit-baptized believer is a priest of God and has a ministry to fulfill. Jesus made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God. One last scripture, and we're going to close. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. There's a scene in heaven here. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them, there's that word again, made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. That brings in even another aspect to the kingdom that we're not going to be able to look at at this time. Made them a kingdom, made them priests to serve our God. Now, this would take weeks and weeks for me to explain, and I'm going to do it in one minute. (laughs) At Mount Sinai, God separated the Levites because they were zealous for him. They took the sword to the flesh, if you will, and they stood with Moses, faithful to God and faithful to his covenant. In the New Testament, we see what that was foreshadowing. And if you read through the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see a number of passages which, quite frankly, are rather troubling. Because as multitudes were following Jesus, he turned to them and repeatedly said, Now, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he must do several things. He must take up his cross, he must deny himself, and he must follow me. Okay, that's understood. But he said more. If you want to be my disciple... You must hate father, mother, brother, sister, and your own life. Whoa, time out. Jesus is telling me to hate my father, hate my mother, hate my brother, hate my sister? What's that all about? Well, I think if you understand what happened at Mount Sinai, you can also understand what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying literally to hate your parents, hate your brothers, hate your sisters. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't advocate hating anyone. What does he mean then? One way I understand this, in light of what happened with the Levites, they loved God and God's word supremely above every other love every other relationship. And yes, it's only natural that we love our parents, we love our children, we love our friends, we love our neighbors. This wasn't an easy thing for them to take the the sword to 3,000 people. 
what I believe Jesus is saying here, from the multitude that was following him, he was also doing a test. He wanted to see who loved him more than anything else. Who would stand on the Lord's side, even if it meant standing against your own flesh and blood, your own father, your own mother, your own brother, your own sister. Now, we don't literally take a sword to them, but if you continue reading through the New Testament, those whom Jesus separated to be his apostles, his prophets, his evangelists, his pastors, and his teachers, that five-fold ministry that was separated out from the rest of the body of Christ, you can read about it in Ephesians 4, separated out to teach, to preach, and to perform all of those priestly functions that we talked about. They were zealous for God. They were willing, spiritually speaking, to even take a sword to the flesh and say, you know what, you're my father, you're my mother, you're my brother, you're my sister, I love you, I respect your opinions, but I must stand with Jesus Christ. It's a test. There's a price to pay for those who truly want to be Jesus' disciples. And that group that was separated out at Mount Sinai, the tribe of Levi, I believe, foreshadows that group that you see emerge very early on in the book of Acts, who stood firm with God and with Jesus Christ in the early church. And it wasn't everybody. There was the body of Christ, and then there was that smaller group that were separated out to be faithful, full-time ministers with Jesus Christ. And again, um, I'm making this very short and very simple. It's a very long and complex thing to go through all the scriptures in the New Testament. I normally only do it when I'm teaching pastors and ministers uh, to get a better understanding of what the New Testament ministry is all about. Let's recap everything now. At Mount Sinai, which represents the baptism in the Holy Spirit, God declares, I want a kingdom of priests. Two key words, kingdom and priests. God would be the king, it's a theocracy, and he would rule through the priesthood. And in the New Testament, God, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, has made us to be a kingdom and priests. In this kingdom, God is king. God rules. And those whom he has brought into that kingdom, we read, they will one day rule and reign with him on the earth as 
little kings, and as priests, they will reign on the earth as representatives of this kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. We enter the kingdom by being born of water and born of the Spirit. Kingdom of God is not eating, drinking, has nothing to do with anything carnal. It's a spiritual kingdom, and it's of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the free gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the promise of the Father. Every one of us has been offered that gift, that promise, and that blessing. Let's all avail ourselves of every resource that God has made available for us to become His spiritual kingdom, to become His royal priesthood. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, it is not by might or power, but it's by Your Spirit, says the Lord. And Lord, in our example, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, we see that He did no ministry until He was baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. It was only after He was anointed with the Holy Spirit that He began His great ministry of teaching, preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead. And God, He told His disciples, wait, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And that is exactly what happened in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when they were born of the Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they became that holy, royal priesthood. God, what an amazing calling you've placed upon our lives to be your kingdom and to be your priests. Help us to be faithful. Lord, you brought them out so that they could serve you. Lord, you have set us free from sin and from bondage, not for us to do our own thing, but so we can serve you as priests of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord, for your anointing upon each and every one of our lives. Help us to continue in that anointing, walking and living in the Holy Spirit, crucifying, putting to death the flesh with all of its lusts, with all of its desires, and living in the Spirit. God bless each and every one participating in this Bible study tonight. We pray Lord, that you would take us deeper, take us beyond where we are, cause us to grow and to mature in these things, that we can be effective in our service and ministry to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.